again, I'm Johanna and I'm a senior. You just heard me talk if you were here at the beginning of the service. I'm going to read the scripture reading for today, which is John 20, 24 through 29, I think. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. One of the interesting things about being uh, in ministry is that I've spoken in front of people for over 20 years about Jesus and this is one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible, and especially after the resurrection, and I've never preached on it. So I'm pretty excited. I am going to keep it within normal sermon length time, but what I love about this is Thomas's honesty. I love that he is being clear about where he's coming from. How many times have you felt left out? Your friends had an experience that you had not had? Your family members got to do something that you didn't get to do. Your coworkers, someone experienced something that was profound at least, if not really joyful, and you wanted the same experience. The disciples had seen Jesus. Thomas wanted to see him also. He wanted the same experience that they had. What do you think he did for those eight days? Did you catch that in the text? There was an eight-day gap. I want to know what Jesus was doing. But I wonder what Thomas did. You know, did he pray the way he was taught as a child, like utilizing the Psalms probably and, and Jewish prayers that males would have been taught? Or did he pray the Lord's Prayer? Because in that moment, he believed, but he was anxious. He believed, but he was unsure. He was in disbelief. That's the word for faith with a negative on it. The NIV that Johanna read says doubt. The ESV says disbelieve. It's just the, the opposite of, of faith. Thomas is wrestling with that. How did he pray? Did he pray the Psalms or did he pray the way Jesus taught? Because he hadn't yet seen Jesus. He wasn't sure what to do with his faith. And eight days go by. You can't not sleep for eight days, but I don't think he was sleeping restfully. I wonder about that. And when we approach a pericope like this in the text, how many of you know that word? Just curious, pericope. I did that on purpose. I was sitting once with two PhDs. They have a doctorate of philosophy in philosophy, which I think looks funny on a degree, which is among the reasons I'll probably never get a PhD. And I said that word thinking, here are some of the few people that are going to know that word, and they didn't know the word, and they were all excited. And they're like, we love learning new words. One of them was my brother. And um, <laughs> the reason I say it is pericope, 
despite its usefulness in understanding some parts of theology. It just means a section of a story, okay? We get a wooden, we're approaching the text in a lifeless way. We approach these six verses and think, there's some data here that perhaps is interesting, or there's some data here that can perhaps I add to my understanding of the Christian life. And we miss the aliveness, the lifeliness, I know that's not a word, of the story. And one of the ways that we miss it is if we read quickly eight days later. God allowed Thomas to be disappointed, hurt, confused, and, feel left, and to feel left out for eight days. Jesus in that is modeling something taught throughout the rest of Scripture. That our God who loves us, but love is never coercive, and who has given us freedom, allows us to go through things. This is a, a mild thing in the scheme of life for Thomas, and yet guarantee he was pretty anxious. He felt left out. And so I try and help us approach a text with some life. You know, if that's me, I'm going to be checking Twitter a lot. Did Matthew say anything about seeing Jesus? I'm going to be looking at my text messages, making sure the notifications are come up, you know, refreshing them. I don't understand Snapchat, so I can't make a reference to that. But I'm going to be looking on Instagram. Yeah, they're posting this old picture when they were with Jesus, but I don't recognize him, and they used that stupid filter, and I don't know if it's him. I know the disciples didn't have any of that technology. Well, as far as I know, they didn't. But I'm trying to help us picture it. What was it like for Thomas those eight days? Thomas gives three conditions and one ultimatum for faith in Jesus. The word belief is the same word for faith, pistuo. And I don't recommend conditionals with God, and I don't recommend them relationally, but I do recommend a faith that is integrated with your emotions and your mind and your intellect and your actions and your words. I love how emotional Thomas is in this. One of the reasons I, in the ESV, it says, and I I keep saying that because Johanna read in the NIV, which if we allow, we'll expand our understanding of the text because the NIV is a good translation, but I love the ESV translation where Thomas says, I will never believe. I don't know about your house. In my house, when we hear the word never, there's usually a little emotion involved. So it is like in your house. No one in the first service reacted to that. I'm like, you guys never have these conversations around the dishwasher where, like, we don't put things in the right way ever? (laughs) And some psychologists and relationship people and pastors will say, don't use the word always and never. I don't have that kind of self-control, and I wouldn't impose it upon you. Here's what I want to say. When you hear the word never and you hear the word always, perhaps be aware that there's emotion involved. It might or might not be disproportionate, but there's emotion in it. You guys are really on your game. You're laughing at even my side jokes that aren't that funny, (laughs) but you know I'm trying. Thank you. For Thomas, there was emotion involved in the three conditions and the ultimatum for him to be able to trust his heart and his decisions and his actions to Jesus. Did you catch it? Three different things. Unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. His faith was was integrated with his emotions, with his intellect, with his actions, and he was doing it in community. 
This was not a problem that he had that he wrote in his journal and no one ever knew about it. He told his, his friends where and how he was struggling. And that is an important, very, 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 very important part of being a human and importantly being a human in a community of faith. Thomas wanted proof and Jesus appears. And they're very clear in this text that the disciples made sure the doors were locked. Which disciple do you think made sure the doors were locked? If I'm a disciple, that's not me. I don't know if you pick up on this about me. Those of you that work with me or perhaps are related to me, you know this. I'm not good at locking doors. One of the challenges I face when we go somewhere as a family is locking the door with the fob after Rachel shuts the door, but before she can say, did you lock the doors? I'm not good at locking the doors. <laughs> By the way, I heard this week that from a neuropsychologist, uh, neuro that if I talk faster, we'll all get smarter. I don't believe I should talk faster, but it was a little bit of an enabling moment for me. <laughs> Who would like to talk fast? Dr. Caroline Leaf, if you want to take it up with her. I don't believe it's best for you or for me, but I did hear that this week, and I was like, oh, I could, I could say all the things. So here are my two theories, and there's a reason why I'm, I'm getting into this, but I'm just going to talk about it for a minute. I think it was either James or Nathaniel. I think James, because he's in the inner circle, right? James, John, and Peter sometimes get to be part of conversations like the transfiguration that the other disciples don't get to, but we don't know as much about James. That makes me think he's a little bit more close to the vest. He's a little bit more cautious. He's a little bit more of a perfectionist, and so maybe he was the one that locked the door. My other hunch is maybe it was Nathaniel. Remember how Nath Jesus called Nathaniel to be a disciple and said like one thing about his life, and Nathaniel's like, he said everything about my life. I've always wondered about that. That's my hunch. Maybe it was one of the two of them. The reason I bring it up is the text is really clear that they locked the doors because the disciples are nervous. They don't know what to do with the fact that they've spent three years with Jesus and he died. And then he resurrected, but then he's been gone for eight days. They're confused. They're sad, they're sad but their sadness is, is intermixed with what's about to happen. So after eight days, and I want to point out something because Jesus is modeling it, and he does it regularly throughout the Gospels. There are timelines to many of the miracles that happen during Jesus' more uh, exciting, shall we say, earthly ministry, meaning when he fed 5,000 people and walked on water and raised people from the dead. God, there are a number of times that, that the story will get set up, will be set up by the author, and then, and then a lot of time will pass before the miracle, Okay? This happens with Lazarus. This happens with uh, the official son. And what's happening is Jesus is modeling something that's taught throughout the rest of Scripture in the Old and the New Testament. Next slide, please. Will you hit the next slide, Liam? I don't know why I'm whispering into Mike. Thank you. And what happens is, or, or sorry, what Jesus is doing is he's modeling something that's taught throughout Scripture, which is that God allows suffering and unsettledness in our lives for his purposes which magnify his glory and are good for our neighbor and are good for us, which is not encouraging if you think of religion as an antidote to how you experience life, to the life we actually have. And the beginning of that, of that statement is painful if you're, if you're connecting the dots to it. That God allows suffering and unsettledness and anxiety for his purposes and ultimately for the good of neighbor and for our own good. But 
when we take that in and understand it, not only are we rescued from heretical teaching about God, which is that his purpose is that you never experience any pain. His purpose is that you experience life. Because his love does not coerce, we will suffer. Because he has given us freedom, and with it, we turned our back on him and continue to do so. With the knowledge that he allows suffering, and it's for his glory, we begin a painful but rich conversation with him. Those of you that have suffered, one of the things we say is, how could this be for your glory? How could this be for my good and the good of neighbor? That is a prayer of faith. And we will receive some answers in this life and some into the future to that question. Jesus appears, and in his appearing, it's not like when he healed people from disease and leprosy. It's not like when he walked on water. It's not like when he turned water into wine. It's not like when he fed the 5,000. The miracle here is appearing in a room. Lock-picking. Why, why is that the miracle? Did he phase into the room, you know, like some superhero? Did he teleport? It does, the text is very unclear. For some reason, one of the first times that I read it, I pictured him like sitting in a corner. You know how movies do that, make shadows appear stronger than they are, and then he stands up? But the text is more explicit than that. That's not what happened. He wasn't there, the door was locked, and then he was there, and we don't know how. And it's not a fireworky miracle like in the rest, like in the beginning of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all have these incredibly profound, powerful miracles that display, that supplement Jesus' teaching. They display his power over nature and sickness and death. And here's the risen Christ appearing in a room. Why? Because now, well, he's restoring his friends. He's restoring his friends to faith and trust in him which is the beginning of sending them out into the world as his agents of the good news and of reconciliation and peace. The reason he's not appearing to Caesar or Pilate or giant crowds, though around 500 people saw him, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is because now the gospel is going to move out through friendship. The reason his post-resurrection miracles are so subtle is now it's on his followers to carry the kingdom message that God loves and likes us, and because of the work of Christ, we're restored to union with God. And I feel like every time I say the word friend, it sounds like an insignificant word, and I don't know what it sounds like to you, but whatever it is about me, Gen X, 2019, being on Twitter too much, it doesn't seem like a significant word, and yet, it is what we are called to. Do you know that? One of the most significant parts of your gospel role in the world in light of the grace and mercy and truth of Jesus' death and resurrection is to be a good friend to the people God has put into your life, to befriend them in ways they can receive what your friends need and my friends need, even more than advice, even more than prayer, false dichotomy alert, of course your friends need prayer. Even more than that book you loved and made you think of them, even more than another Bible, or money even, even more than money, they need your actual friendship that they receive 
as you being for them. How do you do that? I'm going to encourage you in one way that's going to sa- I'm afraid it's going to sound non-profound, but it's not. So I'm going to say it anyway. Come up with a non-leading question to ask them that will lead you to know them better. Not a binary question or a simple question. Friend, family member, coworker, your role as a follower of Jesus is not larger than being a good friend to them. I'm saying that because repeatedly in the post-resurrection narratives, what we see is Jesus encouraging Thomas so directly. Thomas makes three conditions and one ultimatum. Jesus comes to him and gives him three offers and one specific encouragement. We'll see this again with Peter. We see him do this with Mary Magdalene, though she's not struggling the same way Thomas is. Jesus goes to her very directly, restoring her in the midst of her anxiety and grief. So grief-struck she thought he was a gardener. One of the funniest parts of Scripture, I think. Do you hear Jesus' three offers? Thomas makes his three conditions and one ultimatum, and Jesus says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I'm more and more troubled by something I see in my own life and I witness all the time in your lives because many of you tell me what's going on in your life. And it is the ability we have to just end relationships, to turn our back on people, even for good reason, though not good reason in a lasting sense. You know what I mean? I mean, like, your pain is legitimate, and yet, like, I'm just not going to be friends with them anymore because they did that thing that I'll never tell them about. I'm not going to call my sibling anymore because it's too painful. And that's a complex conversation. It involves boundaries. It involves wisdom. And yet, you know what I'm talking about. People have this strong tendency to turn their back on another human and think that that's the answer. And the reason I'm bringing it up is not because I want you to call the person you haven't called in years. It's because I need you to understand the character of Jesus is the opposite. He will never turn his back on us. You see that? Mary in her anxiety, and he goes right to her. Peter betrays him three times, and Jesus restores him three times. Thomas has three big questions, which are not sin. Doubt is not sin. Very important. Anxiety is not sin. Thomas does so in community, and Jesus restores him three times. Thomas has one big ask, and Jesus delivers it. He will never turn his back on you. That's why these stories are so significant. Despite the fact that they were less, what? He's walking on water, he's feeding 5,000. It's just as, if not more important to our hearts to understand that his steadfast love will never, ever quit on us. And you can resist his love because his love is not coercive, because love is not coercive. And he has given us freedom, and so we can turn our back on him, but he will never do so to us. Jesus is modeling something from Genesis to Revelation until Jesus returns and restores all things, which is that God's love will never quit. It is steadfast, it is pursuing, it is pure and good. And it's so important that we understand that his love is not like the love we receive 
in such broken measure in the world. And then I want to point out something about this text that I love so much. Do you notice that we have no record of Thomas doing what he said he had to do and no record of him doing what Jesus offered that he could do? Because he heard Jesus' voice and saw his face and his heart was warmed to the grace of God. And so in his integrated faith and his emotion, I will never believe the response was Jesus' love and encouragement and four-part restoration to him. What are your doubts? Where do you struggle? Is it how complementary are science and faith? See how I was trying to like answer your doubt in the way that I framed the question? I don't know how compelling that is. Is it that can relation... Is it... Is you, do you doubt that relationships can be healed, which the Bible speaks to regularly? Some of the most interesting lay people doubts that I've ever come across are non-seminary people who wrestled in community and with books and prayer, but in that order probably, Christology. Jesus' claims to be both God and man, John 10.30. Some of you have wrestled through that you doubt that? If you have suffered, you have wrestled with whether God is really good or whether he's really powerful. One of those two has become fuzzy or troubling or you can't even think about it in your mind. What Thomas models for us is doubting out loud in community. It is important to pray about it. There are such good thinkers on all of these subjects, but the most important thing that he's modeling is doing it in a community of faith, which means you have a community smaller than this one where you can talk about what's on your mind and your heart and the questions that have never been sufficiently answered and the doubts that wake you up in the middle of the night. Thomas is a model for us, not of humanity, but of moving towards community. And man, community is imperfect. And it will let you down at minute six. But it's what we have. In addition to prayer, in addition to the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we have spiritual community, and in it we are to move towards one another. When it comes to non-leading questions, I'm actually not very good. Remember earlier I was encouraging you with the neighbors in your life to ask them a non-leading question. I was talking to my mom last week, and she goes, are you doing something big for Mother's Day? And I'm like, how my mom and I have never talked about this? Like how I think we're supposed to lead church in light of the complexity of today. And I told her, I said, well, I, we don't really do it that way. And she just launches into a story that I've never heard. Is your family like this? I feel like at like word six, I can finish the story. Nine times out of 10, if not 49 times out of 50. You know what I'm talking about? Your families are not like this. They don't tell the same stories. Mine does. I'm glad you guys are unique and it's got to be engaging and delightful every time. Sometimes family situations are challenging for me. Mom launches into a story that I knew nothing of. She says, I went to First United Methodist Church. That's in Tulsa. I never knew she had attended that church. It's a church I grew up going to, but she had moved away by the time I went there as a kid. 
Um, I lived with my dad and stepmom at that point. And she said, I went there on Mother's Day in Wishard Lemons, which is a challenging name, I think. I think he went by Wish. Like, he just went for it. You know, he didn't mind. But kind of glad my name's Matt. Anyway. <laughs> Wishard Lemons was preaching on Mother's Day, and he had lost a daughter. And he said, Why won't you let me grieve? That was the title of the sermon. And I was so dumbstruck that I didn't know the story. I didn't ask my mom any of the questions that I'll ask her next week or t- today. Got to call her today because her, pa- her presence's not going to get there on time. So I need to call her today. <laughs> and when I call her, I need to tell her that. And then I need to say, Mom, tell me more about this story. But I was so struck by the emotion of it that I didn't ask her any follow-up questions. Um, and the point I'm making is in community, there is healing for us in expressing our doubts and our anxieties and the things that trouble us. And community is messy and it takes us a long time to get it right. And it's imperfect. But God created it for our good. And I'm getting that from the text because here's Thomas telling his friends that he's struggling and then eight days go by and when Jesus appears, he does not do something firework-like. He does something friend-like. I want to offer something, too. I have the microphone. No one's going to stop me. I know some of you, um, it's, it's odd that I'm as sensitive as I am, um, not to everything, but to some things, especially like this day. I would love to hear your stories. And I know that sounds awkward because there are like 163 of you. I don't know how many of you there are. I'm just guessing. Um, and one of me. But if you're interested, I, I love hearing stories because every time... I ask a non-leading question. I end up learning about what it's been like for you, perhaps especially about this day. For some of you, it's a very, very joyful day. For others, it's very challenging. By the way, with my mom, she has three kids. She has a very healthy relationship with all three of them, which is why it struck me so odd that that was the story she told me about Mother's Day. I have a hunch, but I have no idea if it's right, so I'll have to ask her today after I apologize that her gift is not going to get there on time because I ordered it yesterday. Those of you laughing hard have never worked with me on a project, (laughs) which is fine. And the way that Jesus encourages Thomas is to, to, to offer three times and then to encourage him. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And that encouragement is encouraging to us also. Jesus's appearance here is integrating our faith. He's helping our emotions be part of our faith. He's helping us become full human beings through real life. That's, I'm looking ahead a little bit at verse 31. Lifely faith. Not a faith that involves us showing up and checking the box and now God is happy with us. A faith where we're healed from the inside out and drawn into his mission. Do you know what Thomas did after the sermon? I've mentioned this before. He walked to India and there are millions of Christians Still there because he heard Jesus' voice, saw his face, and his heart was warmed to faith. And I'm saying that's an integrated faith. That's not, well, I believe this, so I should walk to India and tell these people, and they'll come to faith, and it'll last into the 21st century. We notice in the story that Jesus neither ignores suffering nor does he offer some absurd quick fix. 
like giving a horrific definition of the word blessed. He offers cosmic and mundane friendship. Cosmic in the sense that by his work we are forgiven of sins and mundane in the sense that when we pray and worship together and are willing to share about our doubts and anxieties and concerns, he draws near in ways we can sense and understand and gives us peace. We notice in the story that all of our questions, doubts, anxieties, and the emotion that accompanies them are met with Jesus right in front of us, received by faith, hearing his voice and seeing his face, and knowing that his love will never, ever, ever, ever turn its back on us because it is a steadfast love. If you're like me, you kind of wish that you could do exactly what Thomas did, which is why John also writes... Jesus said to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then skip a verse and go to verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That word is zoe. That's not your heartbeat and the... What's the brainwaves, that's not what I mean. The quantum energy that your brain produces with the trillions of movements, learned that on Friday too. That's not your capillaries or your feet or your body. That is life that exists beyond the material and then the material is recovered. That is your yesterday, today, and eternity. That is what we receive through friendship with Jesus who is both prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, explaining our life to us. Priest, freeing us into relationship with God and king, and we're waiting on him to take up that crown. Through faith, we receive life in him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are indeed great. to give us space and freedom to receive your love. You have shown your greatness throughout history in pursuing people and calling them to yourself, to yourself, to the peace of faith and to the with God life. You are great in sending your son Jesus, living the life we could not live, dying for us, restoring us to union with you. Holy Spirit, we believe. Help our unbelief. Draw us into the flourishing life that your Son purchased for us. Amen.